KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Good morning, I'm Annika Colbert. It's Friday, March 19th. How the pandemic has changed how we look at education, we'll have that next, but first, let's do the headlines. Nearly 30% of San Diegans over 16 have gotten at least one dose of a vaccine. Still, San Diego County Public Health Officer Dr. Wilma Wooten is urging people to be cautious if going out and to avoid high-risk settings. If people have not been vaccinated, they are going to have an increased risk for contracting the illness uh, if they are interacting with large groups. Whether you've been vaccinated or not vaccinated, we want people to avoid large groups. Meanwhile, Governor Gavin Newsom says when the state first loosened coronavirus restrictions last year, there were mistakes in communicating with the public, and that led to an early spike in summer cases. He says it's, quote, something we reflect on all the time as the state embarks on wider reopenings. Law enforcement agencies in California are stepping up patrols in Asian American Pacific Islander communities following the recent shootings at Atlanta area spas. Here's Officer Lizette Lomelli of the Los Angeles Police Department. We've augmented the deployment of our patrol officers and our senior lead officers. We're having high visibility patrols on foot as well as in marked police vehicles. In San Diego, the police department says it's relying on community liaisons to monitor concerns and respond to any acts of discrimination. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Distance learning during the pandemic has only worsened the achievement gap between students from marginalized communities and those growing up in privilege. But could there be some long-term benefits to this experience? As part of our series, Pandemic Life One Year On, KPBS reporter Joe Hong considers COVID-19's lasting impact on the school day. It was really like a big change because first you were in school and now you're like on a computer all day, every day. Monday through Friday. Luis is a 7th grader currently attending Rancho Del Rey Middle School in Chula Vista. Like the vast majority of students in San Diego County, he spent the past year attending school through a computer screen. But he's also struggled with the added stress of being separated from his family for most of the year. His mother, who previously lived as an undocumented immigrant in San Diego, has lived in Tijuana since 2016. They've barely seen each other during the pandemic. Not being with my mom for 6 months since like 2016 too uh, would be uh, hard for me because I don't have my mom next to me, like, so we can go out, go places, go shopping. Luis has been living with family friends since 2016, but even with their support, his grades have plummeted during distance learning. Luis and his guardians insist he's doing all the work, but when he turns it in, his teachers aren't counting it. Well, right now I'm not doing too good because they're giving me F's and D's for all my work that I turn in. And they're saying that they're missing and that they're not turned in when I saw that I turned them and I turned them in. Luis has tried for months to get his grades fixed, but with no success. 
Experts say Luis's experience speaks to a huge underlying problem with distance learning. The lack of face-to-face -face contact between students and teachers has created in many cases a lack of trust and at least the perception that educators only care about the gradebook and not the struggles of students. Christopher Nellum is the Interim Executive Director at Education Trust West, an education think tank based in the Bay Area. He says rebuilding personal connections needs to be the top priority when in-person learning resumes. Sure, we have to be focused on the academics, but in order for young people to be successful, they have to feel whole and feel taken care of uh, and feel like the folks that they're around who they're engaging with care about them. It's also become clear that distance learning has widened an already large achievement gap between low-income students of color and their wealthier white peers. Kate Chasen lives in Tierra Santa, less than 20 miles up the highway from Luis, but the realities during the pandemic have been worlds apart. I don't even know what to play, honestly, but yeah. Kate is a junior at Canyon Hills High School, formerly known as Sarah High School. School has been stressful for her, but she's maintained high grades. She's also been able to continue her cello lessons virtually. Yeah, luckily I've been doing okay and getting my work in, and I've had straight A's thus far. So. Kate says she wants to study public policy in college, and she's even gotten involved in activism work raising awareness for teen mental health. She said her future goals have kept her motivated. I know it's kind of cheesy, but like the college search. Um, so I'm looking at really competitive schools and you need competitive grades in order to get into those schools. One expert says advantaged and motivated students like Kate have fared better in the virtual classroom, but only as long as they have access to technology and a stable environment. Min Juan Wang is a professor of learning design and technology at San Diego State University. She said a silver lining to the pandemic experience is teachers have become more proficient at using technology. She sees an opportunity for them to use their new skill sets to better help struggling students even after schools reopen. I think after the pandemic, Teach some teachers might go into hybrid mode if that's a possibility, and they would definitely they can they would definitely reach out to students who need more help by having a Zoom session or any other online conferencing. And while Kate has done well during distance learning, she struggled with the social isolation and anxiety. But she's completely aware of her privilege. I already had a laptop going into the pandemic. My family has Wi-Fi that has good bandwidth, so three of us can be on a Zoom call at a time. Like. Um, even just th like my parents can come home at the end of the night and I can be and I can be comfortable knowing that they are making enough money for us to survive. As schools across San Diego County schedule to reopen, Kate says she and her classmates will work to make sure schools have the mental health resources to support students as they return to the classroom. And that was KPBS education reporter Joe Hong. KPBS is also looking at small businesses who are among those who have struggled the most during the pandemic. Today, we'll hear from Mirin Algori, who runs a child care business in Chula Vista. I am actually a second generation family child care provider. And then when I became a parent myself, um, I decided to um, open um, my own family childcare because I didn't want to miss the first. I didn't want to first miss the first, you know, like word in, in first time standing on her own. It really was through the sisterhood. That's how I um, I got my my family childcare going. A hundred percent of the families who I have the honor to serve. Um, receive subsidy. Children get older and, and they, you know, they start either kindergarten or elementary and it just happens that we're, you know, in the midst of a pandemic. So we had to 
um, modify and, and honestly, at the very beginning, just improvise. Like, okay, so what do we have to do to, to support the families? We have been able to get um, better internet services so we can have, you know, those many devices from those young distance learners going. Um, we have been able to, like in my case, I invested in my outdoor area to bring the the classroom outdoors. These are the families that have entrusted their children under our care. These are essential workers that have continued to put food on your table. So we have to support the community and it's never been that doubt on, on, on our side. That story was produced by KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser and video journalist Nick McVicker. For the other small business profiles that we've done, go to kpbs.org slash smallbusiness. Coming up, organizers who are trying to recall Governor Gavin Newsom say they have all the signatures they need. We'll have the latest on the recall efforts next, along with a preview of this weekend's arts events just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Organizers behind a push to recall Governor Gavin Newsom say they've submitted more than 2.1 million names ahead of their deadline this past Wednesday night. About 1.5 million of those signatures need to be verified as registered voters in order for the recall to qualify for the ballot. County election officials will spend the next several weeks verifying the petitions. Lead recall proponent Orrin Heatley did not say whether his campaign would back a specific candidate to replace Newsom. For now, they say they will keep focus on the governor. And call him out on all of these policies that have hurt California and continue to drive this thing forward until we're across the finish line. And we are not done until he is removed from office. Meanwhile, Newsom attacked the leaders of the recall campaign in a national TV blitz this week. He alleged that they're connected to far-right militias and QAnon conspiracy theories. Cap Radio's PolitiFact California reporter Chris Nichols fact-checked those claims in this week's Can You Handle the Truth segment. He spoke with anchor Mike Haggerty. This was also a significant week for the governor. What did he do in response? Newsom was all over the national TV networks, including ABC and CNN and MSNBC. And during every appearance, he defended his record, which has come under scrutiny, especially due to things like the strict stay-at-home orders. But Newsom also went on the attack against the recall campaign. Here's the governor on ABC's The View on Tuesday. Well, the chief proponent of this, and, 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 and forgive me, this is just objective truth, the chief proponent of this recall petition uh, supports uh, putting microchips into migrants, uh, into immigrants. 
the other proponents, the chief, the top 10 proponents, the people that are behind this are members of the three percenters, the right wing militia group, the Proud Boys supported the insurrection, uh, are folks that quite literally enthusiastically support QAnon uh, conspiracies. And so that's the origin here. Let's start with that first provocative claim about the recall leader wanting to microchip immigrants. What are the facts there? Well, there is some truth to this. A retired Yolo County Sheriff's deputy named Oren Heatley is the lead organizer of the recall campaign. And back in 2019, he posted on Facebook that it would be a good idea to, quote, microchip all illegal aliens, unquote. And Heatley has described his post in other media reports as hyperbole. He said his Facebook account was deleted. But Newsom's political team provided a screenshot of that post supporting the governor's statement. What about these claims that some of the recall proponents have ties to right-wing militia groups? There's also some truth to those descriptions. The Los Angeles Times investigated this topic in January. They identified an organizer in El Dorado County as a three percenter, and that is an anti-government extremist movement, according to the Anti-Defamation League. And the organizer has disputed that characterization of the group. And ties to QAnon. Was the governor right about that? Well, earlier this year, the recall campaign's Facebook pages, they repeated some of the QAnon conspiracy theories, such as the the baseless allegation that the presidential election was rigged. That's also according to the L.A. Times. I asked Sacramento State professor Kim Nalder about the governor's statements and whether it's really accurate to say that the recall leaders have these ties to militias and to QAnon. Nalder studies political psychology and disinformation, and here's what she told me. I think it is pretty legitimate to tie the initial effort to those groups. I, I think it becomes you know, less persuasive when you get to kind of the current movement, which has expanded far beyond those groups. Nalder also said she's examined images from the recall rallies and from signature gathering events. She found examples of people wearing 1776 gear or carrying the Betsy Ross flag, both of which are associated with the three percenters. She said she also noticed plenty of QAnon flags and symbols. And that was Cap Radio's PolitiFact California reporter Chris Nichols speaking with anchor Mike Haggerty. Movie theaters are reopening, which is exciting news for people who have been waiting on those big Hollywood films like Godzilla vs. Kong, The New Bond, and Black Widow. KPBS film critic Beth Accomando says the only brand new film opening this weekend in a cinema is the real-life spy story... The Courier. The Courier is based on the true story of how British businessman Greville Wynne was recruited by MI6 to help transport crucial intelligence from a Soviet man named Oleg Penkovsky. Forgive me, I'm just a bit... Sorry. James, I know you said you had an office in the Board of Trade. Is it possible you actually work at a different branch of Her Majesty's government? This is espionage more in the vein of John le Carré than James Bond. It's both fascinating and mundane. The interactions were designed to take place in plain sight and not involve any danger. And for the bulk of the film, that's true. Wynne and Penkovsky engage in bland business banter, while Wynne's wife assumes his new secretiveness is to cover up an affair. 
The film's meticulous, but not quite riveting. It may not be the film to send you rushing back to the cinema, but it's definitely worth seeing to appreciate the bravery and human decency of two men who wanted to make the world a better place. And that was KPBS film critic Beth Accomando. And before we let you go, if you're looking for some arts and culture this weekend, KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans is here with this weekend preview. San Diego County has returned to the red tier, and while many parts of the arts sector remain nowhere near business as usual, we're starting to see museums reopen at reduced capacity. So my first of three arts picks for this weekend will start at the San Diego Museum of Art in Balboa Park, which reopens to members on Friday and to the general public on Saturday. Contemporary artist Colleen Smith's immersive installation and video work was installed at the museum on March 14th, 2020, if you remember that date. If you weren't able to visit during their brief reopening this fall, now is your chance. It's always exciting to get contemporary art within the walls of these larger, older institutions, and Smith actually took as her inspiration an influential 1602 work by Juan Sanchez Catan. It's called Still Life with Quince, Cabbage, Melon, and Cucumber. Cotan's painting is also installed in the room alongside Smith's work. And she was inspired by the impossibilities of the painting and how, in fact, the shadows and voids evoke movement. I spoke to Colleen Smith in July. And the kind of impossibility of the painting, because you can't see very much. You don't see where the string is hanging, even what the light source is, let alone where it is. And so the shadows stop making sense if you look really closely. And she constructed, to the best of her ability, the shelf Katan painted for the video. She was also inspired by Katan's highly detailed studio inventory he left after he joined a monastery. It made her want to create a work that documented her own studio in some way, recording the day-to-day sounds and shadows. At the museum, Smith designed the room to envelope the viewer, immersing them in the sounds and lights of her video work in the otherwise near darkness. So if you've been missing in-person art, this one is worth your time. STMA opens Friday for members and Saturday for non-members. And they're open 10 to 5 most days, noon to 5 on Sunday, and they're closed Wednesdays. Colleen Smith's installation will be on view through September. Next up, Queen Bee's Art and Cultural Center in North Park is hosting an outdoor concert of Afro-Cuban jazz featuring Queen Bee's music director, saxophonist Charlie Arbelaz, and friends. He'll perform with trombonist Matt Hall, keyboardist Irving Flores, bassist Will Lyle, drummer Johnny Steele, and percussionist Charlie Chavez. We're listening to Charlie Arbelaz performing at Queen Bee's last year. They're taking over the adjacent parking lot for this outdoor show, but you can also buy a ticket to live stream the event from home. It's Friday at 7 p.m. at Queen Bee's Art and Cultural Center in North Park. And finally, Takati-based interdisciplinary artist Chantal Peñalosa recently opened a solo show at Best Practice, which is a small gallery in Barrio Logan. The exhibition's called There's Something About the Weather of This Place, 
and it's focused on perspectives and angles of the U.S.-Mexico border. Peñales' pieces include canvases coated with fresh white paint and set outside to collect falling ash from wildfires. She has photography diptychs that follow the changes in cloud formations in the duration of a border crossing, and she even has a scent diffused in the gallery to evoke the border. And one work I'm excited about is a looped video performance work called Sobre la Avenida Mexico, where Penulosa sits in a chair on a rooftop right at the edge of the border. It's the last street in Tecati, and she is eye-level with a border patrol truck. She narrates the experience, which includes several filmed perspectives, and this work and her full exhibition is on view through April 17th. Best practice is open Saturdays from 11 to 2, and you can also make appointments. For more arts events or to sign up for the weekly KPBS Arts newsletter, go to kpbs.org arts. That's KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.